Hi, and welcome to the long-awaited seventh episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Now that we've started broadcasting the Silmarillion Seminar live on Wednesday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, the extent of the episode backlog on the seminar has gotten increasingly absurd, and I plan to start remedying this. In any case, today I bring you Episode 7, in which we discuss Of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor. The seminar group decided to name this episode, All My Exes Live in Valinor. I am going to start with, uh, let's see, the first one I think was Feanor's name. Joe, I think that was you. Alrighty, uh, we're good to go? Go ahead. Alright, now, um, I was wondering, um, does his name, you know, Spirit of Fire, does it not really doom him, but put him on a risky path? Since, you know, from Melkor, uh, came Fire, I just, uh, I thought it was interesting since Fire consumes that, uh, it ends up that Fanor's spirit consumes his body. Um, and uh, I was wondering, is it simply possible that his body could not handle the bliss of his spirit? And um, if that could uh, if that could be kind of what drove him in life, you know, just that uh, fire inside of him. Just really, uh, you know, fire with Melkor and it consuming. Just uh, what it did to him in ways was just really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is really interesting. I guess that there are a couple things there. Uh, one is... Um, what. <laughs> One of the things that actually your question just made me think of, which I don't think it seems kind of an obvious connection, actually, but I don't think I ever made it before, was between what happens with Feanor eventually in the end and what happened to his mom. Um, but uh, maybe we should wait to talk about that more till we get to Feanor's death. But um, one of the things that I would emphasize um, about the name thing and uh, uh, his his being called Feanor and the kind of, as you say, sort of... Um, ill-omened nature of his name. It's interesting. His mother calls him that. So, so he's named Kuru Finway by, by Finway and, uh, his, his mom who calls him the spirit of fire. Um, it's interesting how that comes up later on. That is when he's kind of starting to, well, I was going to say get in trouble, but really causing trouble. Um, and, his brother, Fingolfin, is going to bring it up and say, you know, him, you know, your son, who is called all too truly the spirit of fire. Um, and so, you know, I mean, does that like destine him to this, you know, is it kind of sketchy, you know, as you're sort of suggesting with the connection to Melkor? I don't think it's intrinsically sketchy. I mean, he does burn. And I think that, that, you know, that sort of the burning that we see in Feanor, one of the main things that's associated with Feanor, and it's easy to lose sight of this because Feanor becomes you know, one of the, one of the most, uh, corrupt, uh, sort of morally corrupt, uh, certainly of the elves that we see. Uh, and it's easy to kind of remember him for all the bad stuff that he does. But one of the main things we see in him is that he is very, well, creative. I mean, he's one of the, he's not one of the, he's the greatest artist, uh, of all time among the children of Iluvatar. Um, the work of his hands and the, the, you know, the, 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 the product of his mind. You think even of the reference that he gets by Gandalf, um, back at the end of the two towers, uh, or rather the end of book three, when Gandalf is thinking about the Palantir and what he could do with the Palantir, and he talks about possibly looking back and perceiving the unimaginable hand and mind of Feanor at work. Um, you know, even to Gandalf, he is calling the mind, the hand and mind of Feanor unimaginable. 
what fan you know the, the, so one of the ways in which he is he he sort of burns most and is most flame like uh is in sort of the the creative spirit think of the flame imperishable here um you know where we, we you know we we're talking about how that is sort of like the essence of life and the essence of being um it seems to be sort of a manifestation or a metaphor for the very kind of creative uh, power of God himself. Um, and Fanor has that kind of fire, too. He has that kind of flame, shows that kind of flame. Um, now, like the bad flame, like the Balrog kind of flame, he also shows. Um, but that's a corruption. That's a perversion. Even in the Balrogs, that's a perversion. Who knows what they would have been like before they fell. Um, that's actually an interesting kind of thought, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, puzzle, actually. Well, not puzzle exactly, but an interesting speculation. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it, it's important to kind of remember all that whole picture about fire when we're thinking about Fanor. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, I just want to say it's interesting um, how you talk about that uh, perversion of things. It's like how later on in the chapter talks about uh, Manway and um, how uh, he, he doesn't understand evil because he's not perverted like that. And then... Yeah. Um, just also how uh, the grief connects to the beautiful things coming. That's just it's just tied into that entire theme, which ties back to the you know the beginning. It's just it's amazing how that's all intertwined. You know the grief and the beauty, and then back what I said about the evil. That's just interesting that you brought that up. That uh you know man, I can't comprehend it, and that it's simply a perversion of other things. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And that passage I think is really interesting too. Um, yeah, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't just uh, indulge myself in jumping around all over the place. Um, we'll 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 come back to that. I know several people wanted to talk about that. Uh, the apparently unfortunate decision to let Melkor go, but uh, we should come. We should come to that in due course. Let's uh, let's let's keep on with with Feanor here. Uh, as long as we've already broached that subject, uh, let's see. Dave and Laura, you guys wanted to uh, to pitch into this. Uh, let's see, uh, Laura, can we, should we start with you here? Sure. Uh, I just wanted to comment that uh, Tolkien actually uh, calls it the secret fire. It's, um trying to find the passage here. Oh, here it is. All his love he gave thereafter to a son, and Feanor grew swiftly as if a secret fire were kindled within him. And so that's the same. He's using the same term that Gandalf uses. Um, yes. I, I am the servant of the secret fire. So yeah. is that the creative spirit then, the secret fire? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, certainly that's, I think, one, I, I mean, I, that's certainly one way to understand it. And it's certainly hard not to remember Gandalf's speech. Um, uh, and obviously it's not a bad thing when Gandalf is saying, I'm a servant of the secret fire. Um, of course, he's mentioning flame twice, right? Wielder of the flame of Anor is like, look, I've got the, I've got the ring of fire. Uh, of the, of the three rings. I'm a servant of the secret fire. Um, of course, this is all in Gandalf's speech, a preface to the dark flame will not avail you. Like, don't try fire on me, man. Like, I can outfire your fire. So that's not going to do anything. And that's when the Balrog's flame dies. Um, so there we can see actually a direct confrontation between the pure fire and the corrupt fire. Uh, in the confrontation between Gandalf and the Balrog. Um, so yes, when a secret fire uh, you know, it, it is within Feanor there at the beginning. That I think is, is a good thing. Um, and we can see this right away in Feanor's life. I mean, he is immediately, uh, 
creative and productive and uh and 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 doing good things um i mean i just love the fact that while still in his youth you know he like creates a new alphabet uh and improves the work of rumil uh and makes new letters i was sort of joke in class that that was like his you know junior high science project uh you know like what does feanor bring to the science fair like you know a new alphabet for his language um but uh anyway so i mean i think that that's uh you know so, so there we can see and i think it's really important for us to separate the nature of feanor kind of objectively understood and the corruption of that nature as we see it being corrupted um through the choices that he makes later on in life um so eventually the fire which is going to consume him from the inside out um is going to be is not i think the same thing as this fire the secret fire that grows within him or i would assume the fire that his mother is recognizing when she gives him that name in the first place now it's it's a little bit difficult because on the one hand you can say well you know you know his mom is going to isn't going to be like you know i think i shall call my son like the one who is doomed to evil and destruction but at the same time she may in fact have some premonition i mean although it wasn't his fault his birth has brought a you know is going to is bringing about her own her, uh, her own destruction too um dave go ahead you there dave have i taken you by surprise yes. oh, go um, ahead i want to take the fire thing in a different direction uh i want to look at the very last sentence of the chapter in fact where it says for Feanor was driven by the fire of his own heart only, working ever swiftly and alone. And he asked the aid and sought the counsel of none that dwelt in the Mon, great or small, save only and for a little while of Nernel the Wise, his wife. And because, um, you know, there's there's always this, I think there's always this temptation to, to try and, when you see a word like fire here, to, to map it to other times Tolkien uses the word fire and, and to, conflate all those things and it's possible maybe by fire at least in some uses in this chapter he's not talking it's not always a reference to the sort of higher metaphysical idea of fire but maybe it's just the sort of more standard western metaphor of fire being sort of the thing inside you that drives you and um and i think maybe what's what's particularly interesting about fanor's character is not you know some special connection to the secret fire but just the fact that he is such a sort of inwardly driven person um, that, that um, you know, that he, he from the very get-go, goes he, 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 well, he's a lot like Melkor, actually. Initially, not entirely like Melkor um, in that uh, um, he, you know, he's not evil initially, but he's still, he's, he's immensely skilled and prodigious. He does a lot of really great things. He's really clever. Um, but he just has this propensity for kind of going off on his own, doing his own thing, not really, you know, um, collaborating, not working on joint projects with other people. Uh, and I think that, that that's really, I mean, that is the number one characteristic driving him. It's it's just he has this propensity from the very beginning to sort of be his own man, which is both wonderful and also ends up sort of being his um, his del- his downfall. I would I would point out that. I can't remember if it's this chapter or the next one, which I also read because it was hard to resist. He, uh, he, after after Finway remarries, he doesn't want to live with his um, step family, and he goes off on his own and explores Amon on his own. And that kind of reminds us of um, Melkor going off and looking for the fire in the void by himself. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that you know there are a couple things that we can see there. To, to go back to the the very first thing you were saying, I agree. 
Um, sometimes when you talk about fire, I mean, one of the things that is very commonly associated with fire metaphorically when a person is, when you talk about, um, you know, the fire within a person or a person being fiery is also just sort of his being passionate. And he clearly is like, you know, Feanor is clearly a very sort of passionate, headstrong, impulsive person. And we see him acting in that way many times. So he is also sort of full of fire in that way, too. And that, I think, actually, kind of like the other, you know, sort of the higher metaphor of fire that we were discussing as far as his sort of, uh, you know, creativity or sub-creativity or whatever, um, this too is it's a, is a good thing, um, but can be perverted and misapplied and will become perverted and misapplied. Um, and I think we see kind of a glimpse here in the passage that uh, in the passage in this chapter where we get the uh, the reference to the fact that although later Melkor is going to take credit for the Silmaril and say, oh yeah, you know, Feanor, I taught him everything he knows, that that wasn't true. That he actually did, although he gets he ends up getting twisted by Melkor and believing at second or third hand some of the lies that he tells. He doesn't just give in to Melkor, and he actually does resist him, where a lot of the Noldor are actually just falling for him all over the place and, 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 and getting suckered by him. So Feanor is, you know, his sort of strength of character and his fiery spirit and his impulsiveness and his, uh, you know, and his passion are a good thing and they help him they, they they help him not to just become a servant of Melkor which is what Melkor wants um but those are the same things that, that are going to lead him to rebel against Manway too so you know when those things get get misapplied and well that's i mean that's, yeah, go ahead. that's the paradox of him isn't it cuz he of of all the Noldor he hates Mel, Melkor of all the Eldar in fact they say he held he hates Melkor uh, the most of anyone, yes. uh, and he refuses to listen to Melkor, and yet he ends up being the one that accomplishes Melkor's goal. <laughs> right. He's, right. He, he ends up being Melkor's best servant, despite his um, refusal to do what Melkor says. And so his, his strong internal drive and his sort of um, staunch independence uh, serves him well in that he doesn't fall into Melkor's traps uh, willingly, but also ends up tripping him up because he falls into Melkor's traps unwittingly. Right. Yep. Yep. No. I mean, I think that that's 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 exactly it. And I think that we can see, um, you know, this is a sort of a part of a pattern that we've seen all the way through. I mean, those who are greatest, those who are sort of the more you are, the more the closer you are to Iluvatar. That is, the more Iluvatar-like you are. The, the the greater, in some ways, is the temptation, not the temptation, but the greater the potential to go wrong. Melkor is the greatest of the Ainur, and this is one of the things that leads him the way that he is. We were looking in the Aule and Yavanna chapter about how it's exactly that creative impulse in Aule, in which he is so like a Luvatar, that you know, led him into the kind of presumption and and problem that he got into. Um, Feanor is the greatest, you know, most creative of all of that. I mean, he is a very direct parallel to Melkor. You know, he is to the elves what Melkor was to the Ainur, um, you know, proportionally. And so, therefore, it's sort of unshocking when we see him, when we see him going bad in some ways. And so, Dave, I think coming back to the other point that you made, I, we see, I think that we are, you are right to suggest that we should start getting uncomfortable when Feanor is spending so much time off by himself, when he is not able to remain in community, even with the rest of his family, um, but going off by himself. And we certainly should be remembering Melkor going off on his own into the void. Um, 
that I think is at the very least a bad sign here. And especially when you think of how it's compounded in his immediate family. Um, I mean, there's the issue with like, should Finway have remarried? And we can come back to that question. That's a very interesting question. But, but Feanor, I mean, there's not much really, it's, one could say, sure, it's, 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 it's understandable that he might not have approved of his dad's second marriage. But you know what? Like, uh, it, it, there's also something a little bit strange about having a story, um, a story like this, where instead of having the wicked stepmother, when you have the second marriage of the father, instead you get the wicked stepson. Um, it, it's it's just it's not right. I mean, there's something. Um, we know that Finway really loves his son, so I don't. Th- and we, you know, that gets emphasized a lot that Feanor is his favorite son, and so. You know, he doesn't seem to be neglecting Feanor, even though he's been married a second time. I mean, whatever. It's, it's, there's clearly, clearly some issues there. Jack, you've been, uh, you've been patient. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to, um, talk about, uh, Feanor's mother and why perhaps she called him that. And I think it was perhaps, um, with a strong premonition that no good was going to come of his life. And, and the, I'm just using, just reading some wording here. Um, um, but in the bearing of her son, Maria was consumed in spirit and body. Mm-hmm. And after, and after his birth, she yearned for release from the labor of living. So in essence, um, you know, he consumed her. I mean, she, there was nothing left, um, that she, she couldn't even weep. She couldn't even weep. Um, and she was too weary to weep. And then it goes on to say, hold me blameless in this and in all that may come after. It's like she had a, she knew nothing was gonna good was gonna come of pain or, or suspected it, and perhaps the consuming and the fire, um, perhaps that's tied in together. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, and I think it is an interesting question. And, and Laura, this is a question that you asked in type, uh, in type as well about um, about Mirio. Um, you know, is it the fire that consumes her, or you know, is she is she, you know is the pre- her premonition of Feanor's future? Um, what really gets to her. And and I don't know. I mean, I think that that's sort of an interesting question. I mean, she, she doesn't have the strength to live. I mean, you th- is, is part of the problem that she doesn't have the strength to face what's going to ha- what her son is going to do. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think that's possible. The death of Muriel is a little, is a little weird. Um, you know, I've been putting off, there've been a couple of times we've been talking about when, you know, when elves die and what happens to elves when we die. And I keep saying, let's wait till we see our first dead elf. Here she is. We have our first dead elf right here. Now her, you know, it's, it's a little odd because her body sort of is kind of kept, uh, you know, there in Lorien, but we're told that her spirit departs. Um, and it's clear that she is sort of accepted as dead by the fact of Finway's second marriage. I mean, that's, you know, he plainly is, uh, uh, is sort of accepting that. But, um, anyway, so I think that, uh, it's, we don't see elves just die for no reason. Like, I mean, they can, they can waste in grief. Um, we're told, what is she grieving for? She's just born her first child. Now, again, we know, you know, that, the you know, she says this, you know, the strength that would have, you know, that, that would have been for many went, went into him. So, you know, she, you know, she talks about being sort of physically and spiritually exhausted, um, from having sort of put so much of herself, uh, into her mighty son. But, you know, there certainly is in the description of her and, uh, of her situation, it also looks like sorrow and grief. Um, so I think that 
you know, one could certainly make an argument for her suffering from a premonition here, which really does impact her own ability to recover uh, from from this, that she, you know, she is weakened, but then she just fades. You know, she goes, she goes, she goes, you know, go south instead of coming <laughs> instead of coming back because she can't take it. And she has, you know, as she is close to death, has this premonition, which people close to death often have premonitions like this in Tolkien, that is, of what is going to happen. Um, so, anyway, uh, I think that that's, uh, um, yeah, yeah, yes, you know, as Mike says, uh, it's certainly postpartum depression, uh, yes, of a very extreme kind. But, the, but again, see, that's the thing. What, like, what is she, I mean, this is not just, I, I mean, I don't think Tolkien was making a reference to, like, you know, the, the physiological phenomenon of postpartum depression. What would she have to be grieved about? What what did, what cause does she have for sorrow? For weakness, yes. For exhaustion, sure. But why for sorrow? Um, if there seems to be grief or sorrow involved, as I think you could argue that there is, and and there is where I would come back um, to the premonition. Laura, you wanted to you wanted to pitch back into this. Yeah, I just wanted to say I've always kind of been puzzled by this story, and I wish she'd written um, a little more detail into it. But um, it seems to me you can you can sort of make a case for for either um, her premonition being the cause of her death, her her grief as to what's going to come, or um, or just uh, losing her strength. Um, and the way it's written, it almost seems more like she's just lost physical strength. She just is too weary to live. But if that's the case, her body after she dies, after her spirit leaves her body, her body remains unwithered. Mm -hmm. So evidently, it, you know, that kind of speaks against a physical, um, a physical reason for her dying. So unless it was, you know, going back to the fire, um, her fire was given to Feanor when he was born. So it's really a unique death among elves. I mean, there's no nobody else who dies this way. Um, maybe Luthien, uh, who... <laughs> sort of died but that was uh more from grief yeah so. yeah and and it's yeah and i think luthien's sort of in a special um in a special kind of case i mean when luthien dies it's also it's kind of like all right hang on i want to go i, I want to go see mandos and there's only one way to do that so i mean it's you know her 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 death especially the the sort of the lack of description of we get that we get of luthien's death um is i think really interesting but but what, what's um um of course, I'll wait for Luthien until we get to that. But I agree. Um, yeah, it's certainly not not a physical death that she dies. As we as as you say, her body is her body is there. Her body's fine. Um, and I want to emphasize, you know, the, I, I might as well like say some of the things that I've been pushing off until we get here. That is, until we get to our first dead elf. Is you know, we have talked on several occasions of sort of of elven you know, death and the relationship between the bodies and spirits of elves. And we know that when elves die, they go to the halls of Mandos, uh, you know, to the halls of waiting, but they don't, you know, this is not, they're not separated from the earth in the way that the spirits of human beings are separated from the earth. They're just, they're there and they can rebuild their body. They can come back. I mean, we've seen, um, we, we, we've seen, uh, the way that sometimes people can do that. I mean, we know that Glorfindel came back, uh, you know, body and all. So, um, it is possible for people to do that. Um, yet the way that Muriel, and, but you think living over in Valinor, I mean, her body is there in Lorien. 
Next door is Mando's, where her spirit has gone. So you'd think if this were really a question of sort of death among elves being essentially not a big deal at all, like it's just kind of a, you know, it's more like a relocation than a termination of anything, then people would be, like, basically, we see that Finway keeps going to Lorien to try to call her back, right? He sits there by her body, and he calls her by her names, but she doesn't return. And so he says, well, you know, she's she's dead um well like okay so one question is all right if 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 for elves death is just a relocation her spirit is now in mandos but she's still there and everything's fine why doesn't he go next door to mandos instead of going to lorian why doesn't he go go to mandos and hang out with her spirit instead of going to lorian and hanging out with 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 her body um well it, that doesn't seem to occur to him that's a, that's that compo- that just doesn't happen there's 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 no question of that he mourns her um as one, you know, it's, it's it almost. It sounds like almost like a human being would mourn a dead wife, and then he marries somebody else. So um, I, I think yeah, Laura says because he's a guy, right? Exactly. But that's that's the thing. He acts like a normal guy, you know. Anyway, so um, I think that there's a kind of permanence. Clearly, uh, Muriel is, I think, a caution against our taking too lightly the death of elves. Um, it's, it clearly is a big deal. And when the hall, when the, the spirit of an elf is in the hall of Mandos, it's not, they're not just, you know, there and you can hang out with them like everybody else. And the process that elves go through, even in his discussion of Glorfindel and the return of Glorfindel from the dead to Middle Earth, um, which was a very rare case, uh, indeed, I think a unique case of a dead elf returning to Middle Earth. Um, well, in that case, even there, he talked about there was a process involved, um, and especially, you know, some special exceptions were made in Gorfindel's case um, that are not usually made. So I think that um, that anyway, there's there's clearly more than just relocation going on here. So I think that this Muriel, at the, at the very least, just in thinking of what Muriel's death seems to suggest for Elven death uh, on the whole, uh, should help us to remember. That although they're immortal and none of them leave the earth and so they're all still hanging around, it it still it is not it is not a a small it is not a small deal, um, but uh, anyway, um, okay. Let's see. Uh, let's see, John, you wanted to talk about Feanor and his pride, also. I think, long as we we're on the Feanor subject, we might as well. Yes. Um, I was just curious. We hear a lot about um the secret fire and the fire of Feanor. But I was wondering whether this ties back to the flame imperishable that we see in the beginning of days, and whether eventually this leads to his pride, the idea that his fire might actually, in the end, lead to this um, overlust and confidence later on. This is what might uh, spurn him on to basically his later deeds, this idea that he has become superior, or there is some evidence here that he has some fire intrinsically different or perhaps to a greater extent than his fellow brethren. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what I think we can see. Um, exactly what I think we can see pretty frequently is this idea of, you know, the more you have of a good thing, the harder. I mean, it's hard to be the best. Yeah, that's what a trend that we see all the way through. And again, as I emphasized when we were talking about Aule, you can see the same thing here. Um, the thing the thing that he um 
the thing that makes him the best, the thing that he is so good at, um, the thing that is so good about him that is the creative thing, which is the thing that Tolkien, you know, defends. And this is this is this is an intrinsic right. It's perfectly okay to be a sub creator. This is how humans were designed. But, but it also is the thing which is leading his worst characters or his characters who go wrong or almost go worst wrong um, to to go really badly wrong. I mean, this is what's wrong with Melkor. This is how Aule almost screws up. This is what's wrong. Um, I, at least one of the things it seems is wrong with Feanor, too. Joe, go ahead. All right. Uh, well, just a note for Dave, maybe. This was kind of more on Muriel's death. Is it okay if I kind of go sure, on that? Yeah, we were yeah, talking no problem. About it, but then we switch back to Feanor. No problem. All right. No, just um, I think earlier in the text or sometime in the text it says that um, you know, elves' bodies won't endure forever. But if they like live through a millennia and their body just kind of becomes weary, I mean, they kind of have the choice to part from their body. I think it says something like that. And I wonder if um, what what Miro went through, if that could be compared to that kind of, I mean, just like the grief she went through, which could possibly have been the loss of her life and the joy that she could have enjoyed with her with her husband, um, and just you know everything she put into it. If that could be comparable to the millennia that an elf could take and eventually just leave their body. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it is a good question. I mean, the other, um, putting aside the example of Luthien, which Laura raised, and I agree that that's a good example, though it's a complicated one, and she's such a special case as far as her relationship with death goes um, that, I'm hesitant, that I'm hesitant to go there, besides the fact that we haven't gotten to that chapter yet. But um, the other sort of most famous example the, the the apart from muriel the most famous elf that i can think of in tolkien's works whom we see dying just of grief who does not die because of a wound to her body but who just dies uh because of this sort of grief of spirit is elrond's wife um uh you know arwen's mom you know so this is calabrian uh goadriel's daughter um now she she dies not because of sort of sorrow of, uh, you know, the kind of grief there, but because of her suffering. She was taken and tormented by the orcs in the passes of the Misty Mountains, and she sort of never recovered. She, 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 she wouldn't live after that. Like, it's like her, the sort of emotional and psychological scars of her, of her torture among the orcs were too great. Um, and in the end, she would rather have gone away so she she goes she goes back to Valinor but there's that same there's that same uh, yeah i mean she is wounded but it's not as a result of her wounds that she dies um it's a it's a it is it is a, it is with her a a spirit thing again um and it is i think we do see her we do her we do see her suffering not physically i mean she did suffer physically clearly but that isn't what did it for her what did it for her was for her spirit her spirit needed healing kind of like frodo's spirit needs healing at the end and cannot be healed uh on middle earth even though things have turned out well and even though things are okay um but um but anyway so i mean that kind of that kind of need for 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 spiritual healing healing for emotional healing um those kinds of wounds can seem to lead to this so i think you know muriel seems to be also kind of in that camp which is interesting because she i mean she's not been like captured and tortured by orcs um and this is again where i wonder if you know sort of our speculations about the premonitions of of the future play as much of a part in it as the weakening of just sort of putting so much oomph into her son joe go ahead i was just going to say it seems like suffering uh spiritually and physically is like a key to making someone want to leave their body just um being un- unable to handle 
the weight of everything in a physical form just seems to lead to them just wanting to leave completely because grief in itself, although it causes beautiful things, is still grief and it hurts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean, notice she's taken to Lorien, that is, Muriel is taken to Lorien, um, which is the place of healing. It's the place of rest and healing. It's where, like, if her spirit, if her spirit had been healable, it would have been healable there. Uh, her body is fine, we're told, uh, even after her spirit departs. But in the end, it seems like, okay, her spirit can only be healed by the uh, much more thoroughgoing healing processes that are available in Mandos. Because that does seem to be one of the things that happens to spirits in Mandos, is that they are cleansed, they are purged. Um, and uh, that seems to be what she really needs. So anyway, um, uh, I feel like we've, uh, we've been um, sort of dwelling on Feanor and Muriel, which is uh, very understandable because uh, sort certainly Feanor is uh, is our our main character here in this uh, uh, in this chapter. Um, but there have been about like fifteen other questions too. Um, Matt, uh, let me go ahead. Uh, you wanted to uh, talk about style, so let's let's do that before we go any further. Uh, am I on? Yes. Yes. Hello? Hi. Can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Well, what I wanted to talk about was. Um, the <clears throat> last week we referred to uh, one of the ways that Tolkien kind of conveys depth is referring to a character and then not telling you more about that character. For example, we were talking about Ingwe, the High King, and there's a mention of him and then no more about him, and so it leaves you wondering. In this chapter, what really got me interested was three passages that seem to reflect currents of thought and opinion about who should be blamed for Feanor that are sort of bubbling beneath the surface. The first one we talked about, which was when Feanor's mother says, hold me blame, blameless in this and all that comes after. And I wondered, blame for what? She's foreboding that there will be blaming and recriminations about future events. Who is to blame if she is not to blame? And maybe she should be blamed. So I mean, that first that, that first passage sort of starts the ball rolling about this idea about blaming and who who is properly blamed. The second one is, um, we talked about this also, Finway uh, marrying Indus and the passage in those unhappy things which came to pass. Uh, there's like a, a statement about, okay, well, maybe we should blame Indus, but then at the end of that paragraph, the author who's writing this history says, well, no, we shouldn't really blame Indus because, uh, you know, as bad as Feanor was, Indus's children and grandchildren were really great and noble, and uh, therefore, you know, she should not be blamed. And then finally, and this might be pushing it a little bit, the third paragraph at the very end where the author is trying to say that, okay, Feanor was snared in the webs of Malkor's malice, but he never specifically learned from him or talked to him or, or got knowledge from him. That's the third instance where it seems like there's an author, or I would even say like a historian, who's attempting to rebut points that have been made at other places in other histories and all three of them together provide this depth like there is a there are other explanations about why things went wrong and who is to blame and in each of these little 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 uh, uh, pieces you see the author in this case saying no 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 that's not really where the blame should be and it totally reminded me of ancient Greek or Roman histories where the historian has to, as part of his own history, explain why certain other counter-histories uh, are, are incorrect or erroneous in some way. And so, you know, for me, that's what really came through in this chapter was the depth of the fact that the struggle to assign blame 
probably is continuing and, and will continue, but he's trying to explain who should be properly blamed and who should not be blamed and why. And it's kind of all happening behind the scenes, but there's enough of it there to really pick up on it, and, and it, I, I just think it's terrific. Yeah, no, I think it's a really great point. I mean, I think it is, uh, it is really fun, those moments that we get, which seem to be sort of the attempt to refute somebody who we don't even know who is talking and we don't know, uh, sort of even necessarily, uh, obviously what are the alternate theories out there. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, I would say the, and of course the one interesting exception to that in this, uh, chapter is that, um, the the one the the one the one uh the one exception in this chapter is the Finway thing, um that is where this chapter does not just say okay um let's uh let's clear this up you know who is to blame or who's not or it was Fan or you know helped by Melkor or not but it just sort of leaves this open question like some people say this and some other people say this you know discuss um and so that I think is sort of an uninteresting moment okay. Matt, <laughs> I was sort of laughing in the middle there, reading uh, reading Dave's t- chant in support of Matt here. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Matt. Well, I, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, I don't know if it's going to be, be worth all the fuss, but <laughs> uh, from the very first paragraph of Chapter 6, uh, the last sentence uh, reads, Then it was that the Noldor first bethought them of letters, and Ramil of Tyrion was the name of the lore master who first achieved fitting signs for the recording of speech and song, excuse me, song, some for graving upon metal or in stone, others for drawing with brush or with pen. Now that's a very, very fancy way of saying they developed writing. Yes. And, uh, yes. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, Tolkien has been much maligned for using this style in the Cimmerillion. It's put a lot of people off from probably reading it, and a lot of critics have been very harsh with, with it. And, and, and Dr. Olson, yourself, you've made the point for, though, that it's very fitting in this case because it, it lends the weight of uh, authenticity to it. You feel like you're reading a historical artifact and a document. And, uh, and, uh, it, um, you know, the, one of the unfortunate side effects of all this is a lot of fantasy authors that have followed have sometimes tried to copy this style or or throw in a few uh, uh, of choice words to make their their style sound more archaic. You know, a thou here, uh, a thee there, and and and, and it, it just rings really false. And because they haven't taken the time to invest their world with uh, a language and geography in history the way Tolkien has. He's, he's put so much work into his universe before he's even gotten started telling the stories. And so, um, you know, I, I admire him for that. And, um, and you know, I appreciate Dickens. Dickens writes very complex sentences and paragraphs, and you have to really concentrate to follow along. And at the same time, I admire someone like Hemingway, who really made efforts to simplify the language and the way stories are told. But I think what's important here is that the style needs to fit the material that you're presenting. And in this case, and maybe in this one lone case, I think the style that Tolkien has chosen really fits the material that he's in. Yeah, no, I think that is an excellent point, and I'm glad that you've brought it up. It has been a while since we've talked about style, and uh, it, it is, as you say, such a such a, a noticeable thing for so many first readers. 
um, who come to this. I mean, yeah, that, that I, your, your choice of sentence is, is excellent. Then it was that the Noldor first bethought them of letters, first bethought them of letters. Um, nobody talks like that uh, anymore. And I as you say, when I've heard anybody say bethought. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, and you're exactly right that, you know, there are many fantasy writers who, if they try to sound like that, end up sounding really dreadful. Um, and actually, I was thinking of you know, an, another example I was thinking of when you were talking about that. Um, I've just been reading, I've just been reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with uh, my son Nicholas, who's seven, and uh, we're reading the Horse and His Boy now. And when whenever you hear from uh, the Pevensey kids while they were Golden Age kings and queens, they speak. Almost in Sir Thomas Mallory's English, not quite, uh, though some of the vocabulary is actually more complicated than Sir Thomas Mallory's. Um, but, you know, so we see this in the last chapter of the, of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and when we meet them uh, in The Horse and His Boy. Um, and I mean, I was just reading the passage where Edmund and Susan in that book are talking about, like, well, did you see how... Rabidash deported himself at the great tourney and hastelude that was held at Care Paravel. Um, you know, it, Lewis can do it too. He doesn't always do it, and he doesn't maintain it for a book like Tolkien does. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, well, they really knew what they were doing with that. Um, and they, both of them are doing it for particular reasons. Um, you know, this is in Narnia, this is the golden age of Narnia. And so you have this, you know, this sort of classic uh, you know, English being spoken to evoke exactly these sort of, uh, you know, great old time golden age, you know, sort of sense of things. Tolkien's doing it for a different reason. Um, but yes, exactly as you say, it lends to, um, this is the kind of thing that gives the depth to it. When critics will say, oh, like, you know, why can't he just, like, speak in normal English? Why, you know, it's this, this, like, you know, amazingly sort of stilted and overcomplicated, you know, way of speaking. Well, yes, but if you just sort of contemplate what would be lost if his prose style, in the Silmarillion especially, were in fact like, you know, as sort of a regular, straightforward 20th century English, um, it would be really hard to get into these stories at all. I mean, although the the style can be a barrier to people, um, to some extent, I think it's really a necessary, a, a really a, a necessary barrier. Not that it must be a barrier, but sort of an obstacle to be overcome. Because if you were not to have anything there to overcome, well, there would be much less there to see. Uh, the whole thing would be so much more shallow. And I, I agree, you know, sort of what... Uh, Dave was pointing out about how 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 Mike's and and Matt's points there fit together. The way that we get this sense of of linguistic depth, you know, the the fact that the style is strange, that it is so archaic, helps us to think about these stories as ancient, not just about ancient times, but that these are translations and and sort of relics of an ancient telling of these ancient stories. Uh, we would not be able to maintain that sense in the same way. In 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 the and when I'm shopping around for a uh, a new fantasy book or series to read, the first thing I do is uh, I turn to the map, which invariably every fantasy novel's got a map in the front of it, and I look at the place names and the geography and everything. And if if the place names um, don't sound uh, you know if they just sound you know like nonsense made up words, like there was no thought in constructing the world, that puts me off from from the start. Uh, I just uh, I always choose that as my first my first uh, uh, point to uh, to criticize the series before I've even started reading it. So uh, 
no, uh, I, I, he set a very high bar for other fantasy authors to follow. Um, you, you know, everything everybody gets accused of being derivative of Tolkien or or or, or just trying to be totally anti-Tolkien <laughs> right. the other way around. So it's very it's very very hard. I remember being very off put the first time I read um, Stephen Donaldson in uh, Thomas Covenant series. Yeah, and because uh, you know the language is much different, and I, you know, I, I didn't like it because it wasn't Tolkien, and it wasn't until later on that I appreciated. Well, you know that he was trying to do something very different in that series, and it wouldn't have fit to use the kind of language that Tolkien was trying to use. Right, right. But yeah, it is. It is hard to. Uh, um, yeah, it is hard to, uh, as a as a modern fantasy writer to be neither just like Tolkien nor just unlike Tolkien, as you say. Um, and, you know, and there, you know, one, one thing that I would, you know, I sort of feel almost obligated to sort of plug this, that, of course, one of the things that Tolkien is doing there, like one of the things that he does so well, the thing that um, is basically is, is a medieval thing. I mean, he is very sensitive to the ways in which sort of medieval tellings and retellings of stories sounded and how they worked. And, um, and of course, as not only, uh, not only a student of language, but, a, but a, a student of the history of language, you know, he was very sensitive to not just you know, what are the differences and how does language change, but what are sort of the connotations of these change and under what circumstances do they change? Um, and therefore, what are going to be the significance of using languages? You know, he, he knew that there were these um, set of, of associations. One of the reasons that he uses words like bethought and wouldn't use other words is that he was very careful in in thinking through the etymologies of the words that he used just in his normal prose. Um, he refused in passages like this. I mean, in passages in the Silmarillion, he refused to use any word that entered the English language later than 1500. Like he didn't want any modern words. Um, this is one reason why he shifts from the use of a word like tobacco, which he uses in the Hobbit, um, to pipeweed in the Lord of the Rings, because pipeweed is a construction. It's actually a very Anglo-Saxon construction, just sort of globbing together um, two two simple words to make uh, to make a different concept. Um, whereas, because the word tobacco was a was was a very modern word. I mean, gosh, that entered the language what in like the seventeenth century or something. I mean, that's really recent, and he found it pretty ugly. Um, so anyway, so he, even even in ways like that, he was he was thinking about the way that language affects people and was very sensitive to that. And yeah, it's uh it's hard for people to kind of to kind of compete with that. Um, okay, let me, uh, let me get back. Let's see. Chris, uh, you had some things you wanted to talk about, um, for a while here, both, uh, Balrogs, I think, first you mentioned. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah, I think the first thing that I, okay, the, the first thing I, uh, wanted to mention, and I've read this so many times, but this really struck me this time. It's on page 65 when they're talking about Melkor has been released. And he said, Melkor, uh, he sues for pardon, vowing that he might be made only the least of the free people of Valinor. He would aid the Valinor in all their works. Well, first of all, that sounds very disingenuous. But anyway, the, more to the point, um, it says Nienna aided his prayers for his release. And I always, that struck me as really being odd. Um, I think, as I recall, Nienna is the, uh, the Valar of grief. I, we kind of talked about last week quite a bit, I think. And I just thought what other wondered what others thought about what her motivation was for uh, kind of taking Melkor's part. I thought that was very odd. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. You know, that is a... Um, this is one of the hardest 
questions. I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with this either. I welcome suggestions because um, yeah, I remember having a conversation about this with Liz Bateman when she was writing her thesis a couple years back, and she had a whole chapter on Nienna. And you know what she had done was to go through and pick out every single reference to Nienna in the whole Silmarillion, which isn't hard because there are, I think, eight of them she counted, and. Um, uh, and, you know, and she talked about each one. And this one, I mean, you know, she and I were like, okay, how does this fit the picture? Well, because it's hard because Nina is so great in every other one. In fact, there are so many times when she seems to know a good deal more than everybody else what's going on. I think of, in fact, the way that we say, I mean, the, the, the one which really struck me this past time through was at the, at the, uh, the, the opening of the trees, when, you know, when Yvonne is singing her great song, the greatest song that Yvonne will ever sing, um, at the awakening of the trees, and there's Nienna, and she's watering the mound with her tears, which is, of course, exactly what she's gonna be doing when she, when the trees are destroyed. <laughs> she's gonna be there, uh, uh, watering the, the hill with her tears when the trees are destroyed. You think she would have been- Go ahead. She would have been joyful for the trees. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it is almost as if, and, and when I was reading it this past time, it's hard not to think. Um, does Nienna anticipate the destruction of the trees? I mean, does she know even in this moment when everyone is joyful, is she anticipating the sorrow that is to come later? Um, and that in some way, the very anticipation or sort of foreknowledge that she has of that sorrow actually, you know, in a sense, kind of sort of seasons and deepens the joy of that moment of the awakening of the trees. It's not that I think that, you know, again, it's, it's, it's easy to sort of be like, oh yeah, Nienna, she just cries all the time. You know, she's just like a, a huge downer. And I don't think that there, I think that it's something that gives the opening of the, you know, the, the awakening of the trees even more beauty. But here seems to be the only time, I, I, I think it is the only time, not almost the only time, it is the only time in which we see her acting in a way which seems foolish. Like, why is she suckered by Melkor? Why is she, or is she suckered by Melkor? I, it's hard for me to Go believe ahead. she's suckered by them, but I cannot, in my mind, think of a motivation that would that I can make sense that would drive her to say, oh, great, let's let Melkor out and let him do what he wants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jason, we haven't heard from you yet. Why don't you go ahead? I'm curious uh, what everybody's thoughts are on the whole notion of instead of throwing Melkor into the void after this first war, why they at all uh, decree that there's going to be this term of imprisonment for three ages. I mean, at the point of his imprisonment, they're already saying he's getting out at some point. And so um, maybe instead of trying to analyze what Manway and Nienna are doing here by saying, yeah, let's let Melkor out. Instead, maybe we should be asking why they didn't just throw him into the void in the first place, like they do at the end of the First Age. And I'm wondering also um, if, about Nienna specifically, whether she may have some insight uh, similar to what Manway says when the Noldor leave, and he says he sort of has this brightening up, and says, yes, they will do great deeds and that sort of thing. Maybe Nienna has some sort of insight into the music um, from the Anulindale and knows that this is supposed to be part of the part of the greatness of the music, even though it's tragic at the same time. Uh, just a couple of thoughts there. That's about the only thing that I can come up with. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. Chris, you go. Oh, I was just going to say that that type of thing is the only thing that I could come up with, that there's something... She, that she has some inside information somewhere that she thinks that uh, it's a good thing, that, or it's 
destined to happen anyway, and this is the way it's supposed to happen, so might as well get out now. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was a good yeah. Time. And, and I think that you can see, I mean, one could certainly build an argument that I think would hold together to say, okay, she's Nienna, although, you know, she's mourning and everything, she's not anti-suffering. Like, Nienna, of all people, is not laboring under the belief that suffering is just simply, like, that no good comes of suffering. She knows better than anybody else that good, that good and beautiful things can, in fact, come from suffering, um, as... Iluvatar explained back in the Ainulindalei, um, and she is going to be the last person to forget that. But to then go the next step and say, so I'm going to advocate for suffering, um, that's a different thing. Now, I'm not saying she's advocating for suffering exactly, but if we say that she's sort of supporting, uh, you know, supporting Melkor's return because she knows that's going to bring about lots of suffering and suffering's a good thing. Uh, that is, I, I, I think we can't go too far, or at least not too far too quickly, uh, down that road, or else basically we sort of make Nienna, well, I'm still different from Melkor, but, uh, a little uncomfortably close to his side. Um, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that at the same time, I don't just want to dismiss that either. I mean, I think that there is an important element of that in there. She's not going to just say, um, let's, uh, you know, it, it's going to be an unrelievedly horrible thing if Melkor gets out and, you know, creates more havoc because she knows it's not going to be an unreservedly horrible thing if he breaks out and makes havoc. Um, uh, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, it seemed to me here that Nieno was, um, was, was, uh, symbolizing compassion. She's, uh, after all, not just the, um, the goddess of crying, but she's also um, the most compassionate too. And I think her compassion led her to try to give Melkor a chance to redeem himself, similar to what Gandalf will do with Saruman um, at the end of The Lord of the Rings when he um, comes along and sees him and says, you know, you have a chance, I guess it's not at the very end, but you have a chance, I'll give you a chance to turn your back on everything that you've done before, um, and um, considering that Gandalf spent a lot of time with Nienna, uh, you know, it seems like that that's a that's a good parallel between the two of them. And all, and then also what um, Gandalf tells Frodo about uh, Gollum as well. You know, you don't right. know how everything is going to turn out, so don't be too hasty to judge and you know show mercy. Yeah, yeah, and even <laughs> even to use the uh, the very understated language that I love so much that Gandalf uses there with Frodo about Gollum, um, when he says, you know, that he he doesn't think that there's much hope that Gollum will, you know, could could be cured, but there's not no hope, right? And that seems to be both Manways and presumably, though we see less of it, Nienna's perspective there on Melkor also. Um, and I think this is coming back to, and you know, the, that Laura, you are directing us towards. Uh, uh, a, a, a response to, you know, Jason was accusing me of dodging the first part of his question when in fact I had only forgotten it, but, or, or his point, but yes, that, um, there is not no hope of his amendment. Manway believes that he might be amended. If they, we see a pretty persistent pattern of the Valar giving people second chances and, uh, and, hoping that they can repent. And so I think that, um, we start, we see that, you know, as you point out, we, we see that with Sauron, we see that, um, with it, you know, clearly that I think that seems to be what was in their mind. Even with Melkor, you'd think that he's past, you know, like 
this is more than one or two strikes against him. I mean, this has been uh, a pretty persistent pattern for him, but he is not, they're not totally giving up on him. At the end of the first stage, they've given up on him. He's had his chances. This is, this is, this is not, go- this is not going any further. But, um, I think that, uh, we can see that desire for that, that, that hope. Um, you know, they don't totally give up hope and they're not going to let it go until it's at least tried. And also remember what Mando says, you know, when they say that they're going to let him go, he's like, so it is doomed. Yep. Like that was going to happen. Um, and so I think here we can also perhaps see, um, we can also see not necessarily Nienna at work, but we can see Nienna's, um, perhaps some of Nienna's perspective on this. Somebody in text, not aloud, said something that I thought was really interesting and that, uh, that I wanted to echo, but now I can't keep track of it. Uh, about Nienna and the song. Who is that? Is that Joe? No? Who is that? About her memory of the song and when recall writing that. Is that is what that Dusty up? wrote there? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Dusty, was that you? Yeah, that was me. It was just possibly because there was a, a spot earlier where Manway and Yvanna were talking and then the music arose him and all of a sudden he goes, it is strange, but it was in the song and only Havana remembered it. Could, right. Could she have made sure that Manway got free because there was something she remembered that the rest of them didn't in order for this song to progress to the next part? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly, since we see, since it's so impossible, at least impossible for me, not to connect, connect Nienna with the third theme, uh, of the music, um, that is the, 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 the theme that is so sorrowful and, and, and that, you know, the, so full of that sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. Um, I, yeah, I mean, you do sort of wonder, did she know, I mean, did she sort of know, like Mandos, that this is doomed, like that this sort of in some sense needs to happen? Um, you know, exactly, Dusty, thinking of the language, you know, the expression that Yavana uses, uh, you know, Yavana says, hey, wouldn't it be great, you know, if some of the trees could like walk around and beat up people who wanted to cut down trees? And Manway says, that's a strange thought. And she says, yet it was in the song, right? Um, and, uh, you know, one sort of wonders if one possible way to paraphrase what's going on here with Nienna is, you know, saying, hey, we should let Melkor go. Well, that's a strange thought, but yet it was in the song, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, um, that's something that I think that we can, you know, that, that, I think that kind of works. Joe, what were you thinking? I was thinking part of the sorrow could just be from something so great where so much good could have come from. I mean, he was like one of the greatest of the Valar, just the sorrow of seeing something like that just turn bad. I mean, everyone wants to give him chances and the hope that something just so good could still come. Like, kind of, everybody gives Torin so many chances. I mean, because you can tell he's a great man. He has great potential, but and it, it, it's like you want something good to happen, so you're going to give them chances, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it just that's just kind of the story of it. Yeah, and I mean, and I think, you know, we can't we can't skim over the, the passage about you know, Manway ascent, you know, about Manway's ignorance, you know, his ignorance of evil. I mean, he explicitly, in Tolkien explicitly says he doesn't get it. I mean, he doesn't understand that, you know, that, 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 you know, that love has departed from Melkor's heart permanently. I mean, it's just Manway doesn't get it and he can't see it. Um, but yet, as you say, he wants to give him chances because he wants, he, he, he still wants Melk, even Melkor, uh, to be recovered. Remember the two of them you know, we're brothers in the mind of Iluvatar. They are like one another. Um, and so, you know, he is going to be sort of 
in a sense, sympathetic. Um, not sympathetic to the choices that he's making, but sort of to him, uh, in essence. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, Mandos, he knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't, so he doesn't say anything until they, uh, until they make up their minds. Mike, go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> How about a reading of the phrase, Nienna aided his prayer as, um, not so much Nienna, uh, trying to convince the other Valor that what what he had done was okay, but maybe in the same way, you know, a defense lawyer in a trial attempts to put the best possible interpretation of events and just tries to put the best possible, I don't know, uh, interpretation of the facts on the table. Well, yeah, you know, in one sense, I mean, I think that that, that we can see that kind of idea fitting um, with this sort of desire to give a second chance, right? That he is saying, Melkor is saying the right things. He sounds contrite. He sounds like he's really changing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you could sort of imagine what Nienna is doing there and, you know, in the way that that's phrased and saying, you know, shouldn't we, you know, give believing him a try? Um, if, if we have someone who is great, who has such great potential, which could be used positively, who is now saying that he's repenting, um, you know, can we just, you know, say, ah, no, never mind, and chuck him back into outer darkness? Um, you know, so yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's definitely, that's definitely a way to look at it. Elizabeth, go ahead. This is uh, similar to what some other people have been saying about um, Nina knowing what was in the music and the sorrow, sorrow being written into the music, but I, I tend to think that um, if Melkor had not been released that things really could not have moved forward. Like everything that happened in the development, I guess, of Middle-earth was contingent on Melkor unleashing all of that suffering that he did unleash. And if that had not have happened, then um, there wouldn't have been all that sorrow and there wouldn't have been all all of the growth and all of the things that we happened because growth comes from that sorrow. And um, I, I think that Nina must have known that because that was her part in the music. And so she advocated his release not so that people would have the suffering, but because she knew that that was where the growth would come from. Right, yeah. I mean, it's almost like you can say, okay, like, what's the worst that could happen here, right? Either he's telling the truth and has repented, and therefore great good will come of his repentance and of his change, or he's lying and he hasn't repented, uh, and suffering will come from this, and um, that will be even better, we're told. <laughs> so yes, I, uh, certainly she's in a position to say, hey, look, uh, Honestly, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so no, I, I think that's a, that's, that's a neat way of thinking about it. Go ahead. And I also think it's not just what's the worst that can happen, but, um, but also, I mean, what would have happened if Melkor had not been released? I mean, really, they just would have gone on in the bliss of Valinor, I guess, and, I mean, nothing would have happened. So, I mean, it kind of had to have happened, in, I guess, from my point of view. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, I mean, Mando says so, you know, that it was definitely, it was definitely going to happen. Um, but, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I find myself resistant to that idea in part because, okay, evil brings about 
good that is evil is as we see in the music evil is incorporated into the plan and brings about things that are greater and more glorious uh than the perpetrators of those acts could possibly imagine but that does not mean that if it weren't for evil good would not come um and this is you know one of the things sort of philosophically speaking that tolkien is i think throughout his works really insistent upon is that evil has no positive being um Evil is merely a corruption or a perversion of the thing that is good. So sometimes you will hear people talk about good and evil and will say, well, see, well, there can't really be good, be good without evil. Um, and, and that is not true. Uh, it, 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 here Tolkien adheres strongly to what was, I think, uh, people who know more than I can correct me, the Augustinian idea, St. Augustine was very firm on the fact that evil has no positive existence and and evil is just a, a, a corruption and perversion of good. So, um, therefore, I, for that reason, I find myself a little bit hesitant to say, you know, yeah, like, good would not have come or, you know, the the glory of the plan was dependent upon the evil in some way. Um, it is going to make use of the evil. The evil is helpless to actually destroy the goodness of the plan. It's only going to, to bring about the increasing uh, glory of the plan. But that doesn't mean that without evil and suffering, um, you know, the plan just would have been really second rate. So goodness, it's a good thing that we had some evil people around to spice things up appropriately. And I'm not, I'm not saying, Elizabeth, that you were saying that, but it is sort of for fear lest that sort of conclusion come out that I find myself a little bit resistant to the idea that for these reasons, uh, Melkor going out and stirring up evil is in a sense a very good thing, or that is like good is dependent upon that idea. And I think this is also why uh, I'm resistant back to, I think, uh, you know, Jason, I think it was we, you who were raising this a, a long time ago, um, which was just that she is saying release him in order to facilitate suffering, essentially, in order to you know, in order to bring about the situation which is going to result in all of this all of this evil and suffering because good is going to come from that. That I think is I, I'm sort of articulating I think a little bit more fully the the uh, the objection that I had back then too. Um, so. So yeah, no, I mean, I think we've, I think we've made some progress on the on the Niana front. I mean, I think that that uh, I definitely feel a little bit better about that than I did before. I think that's cool. Um, let's uh, let's go back to. Hmm. I want to make sure to cover uh, that that we cover sort of the major topics um, here tonight. Let's see. I, somebody wanted to talk about the Silmarils, which we haven't talked about at all yet. So we should probably go there. Um, Dusty, I think it was you who wanted to talk about the Silmarils. I think I was reading a chapter ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yes, well, that we should, we should save that for next week. But I mean, we do get, uh, you know, we do, we do get sort of a pointing to the Silmarils here and, and sort of hints at, at, uh, um, the, the full creative work, you know, the, the, the master work that Fanor is going to do. Um, but yeah, I guess we might as well, uh, wait if it's, uh, if it's really a next chapter thing. Um, let's see. Um, I guess this is kind of going back to Fanor a little bit, but a couple of you, Dave and Jack, wanted to talk about Nerdenel, Fanor's wife. Yeah, if I can jump in on, on Nerdenel. Um, I'll just read the short sentence. Um, Seven sons she bore to Fanor, her mood she bequeathed in part to some of them, but not to all. Um, last year when I read the Silmarillion, uh, finally, uh, and I finished it, I thought, oh, this is great, but I'll never read it again. 
<laughs> um, but little did I know that I would be reading it again so soon. But you really need to, it's little passages like these that you really don't get until the full impact of until you read it again. Because when we read this, uh, we know what, having read it the first time, we know what it's saying. Um, we know that it's saying um, of the seven sons, the, the, the bad seeds took after Feanor, the good ones um, were good because of uh, Nardanel's influence and uh, I just wanted to pull this little chat this little sentence out as a as a as a good reason to uh, reread the Silmarillion <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean I think the uh, um, the Silmarillion is a is an excellent illustration um, you know I was just having a conversation with someone who is asking, you know, why is it that people come back and, re you know, I've met, I've met a lot, you know, many people who, you know, will go, go back and reread Tolkien's works, you know, once a year, every year. And, uh, you know, why is it that people do this? And, you know, Jack, that's exactly my answer, because no matter how many times you do it, you will always be finding new things that you didn't notice and making connections and seeing the picture better. Um, uh, I, this is always, this is always happening to me, no matter no matter how many times I read it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point. Joe, go ahead. You wanted to talk about Nerdenau also? I, I just want to bring up the question. You know, it says uh, Nerdenau was the daughter of a great smith, Matan, or I don't know how to pronounce his name, really. But um, I was wondering if Fanor, I mean, he cared about it, but I'm wondering if that could have been, like, you know, a little, a little positive plus. I mean, because he cared about his craft a lot, and anything that could help him gain in that, I'm sure he would have accepted. Um and I'm wondering if that was part of his selfish pride working in that. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, one <laughs> one sort of wants to be charitable to Feanor and think that he didn't just uh, didn't just marry her uh, so that he could, um, you know, uh, for the sake of his father-in-law, you know, so that he could get in with 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 Maltan and learn from him. But um, but yeah, I think that. Um, certainly, that connection I think is an important one. Though I mean, if we think about this, as I say. In a charitable perspective, and not assuming that Feanor had ulterior motives, um, but uh, it seems a sort of a natural match, right? That um, he is drawn to somebody. You know, he ends up marrying someone who's who who has a very wise spirit, who is in fact, um, you know, very very adept herself, and comes from a family which is sort of committed to the same thing that he is, and has that same. Uh, sort of appreciation for for that same kind of subcreative impulse and that's you know, the 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 craftsmanship and everything. So we can certainly see, um, you know, if we think about their marriage in the way in which we are encouraged to think of marriages, back thinking about what we were talking about the Valar's marriages with each other, um, we can see a kind of complementariness to Nerdanel and Feanor. Um, and uh, to me, one of the one of the most telling uh, remarks about Feanor um, is the the reference to the fact that he was estranged from his wife, um, and that's not just a bad sign. Like, okay, you know, like if he can't keep his marriage together, this is this is a really bad sign. And thinking, Dave, of the you know the passage you were the passages you were alluding to before about Feanor going off by himself and separating himself and uh, not uh, you know not being in unity with his family. Well, it, not even with his wife can he do that. But but it's even a bigger deal there. It's not just that he can't maintain a good relationship with his wife, but he loses in being estranged from her. He loses what she would have given him. We see how she, you know, in their spirits, the, how she is complimentary to him. Um, and uh, if the two of them 
had been able to be a little bit more Manway and Varda, you know, with like the two of them side by side and complementing each other and augmenting each other's uh, gifts and powers, that maybe things would have gone better there too. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think we can see, we can see him. Yeah. His being estranged from his wife is really bad sign there. Um, but uh, let's see, Dave, you had, had, had wanted to contribute to this too. Um, yeah, actually like to, be perfectly honest. My comment really has more to do with Feanor than uh, Nerdinel, but but it, it, it it's because of her. I the passage that really struck me as I was reading through this um, was um, the one where well, it's the first paragraph where she's introduced, and it sort of does this compare and contrast of the two of them, Nerdinel and Feanor, uh, in their temperaments, and it says Nerdinel also was firm of will, but more patient than Feanor desiring to understand minds rather than to master them. And then I basically just stopped right there reading that uh, yeah. because the implication there is she's different from Feanor because she wants to understand minds, whereas he is seeking to master them. And, that, and reading that, and that's the first time I've ever really noticed that reading through this chapter, with all the emphasis we've put on um, Melkor's bad because he is, um, you know, he seeks domination of others, and that's the cardinal sin in in Tolkien's world worldview. Uh, this is this is not a good sign of um, Feanor. Now, it doesn't explain, you know, it doesn't get into at, at what point in his um, uh, maturing as an, uh, you know, becoming an adult elf. At what point in his life does he start to exhibit this trait? Um, but uh, you know, I think maybe we can infer that this is sort of this is something that's ingrained in him. This is something you know maybe goes along with his pride and his tendency to go off on his own. But uh, reading that, that that makes him that's one more piece of evidence that that suggests that he's sort of the elf parallel to Melkor. He's looking more and more like Melkor all the time. Oh uh, yeah. That, yeah, that's that's a particularly bad one for him. No, that <clears> that that's to master other minds. Yikes. Yeah, that is certainly a bad time. Um, uh, a, a bad sign. No, I, I, I totally agree. And it's another thing that makes me think back to the comment that Mike made before, too, about sort of the, the sense that we get in this chapter of being told of, you know, how, how clear it is that we're being given an after the fact history and not a sort of live action account of things. Um, because see, that, that is one of several passages where we get this clear sense that the reader already is supposed to know what's going to happen. I mean, most of these things that are being said about Feanor in this chapter seem to sort of presume almost a knowledge of what's going to happen later. You know, the, like it's not necessarily that in his earliest years, which we're still sort of theoretically describing, you know, that he, for, you know, that, that we're supposed to imagine, you know, little like, you know, toddler Feanor on the playground being like, I shall master my playmates, you know, that like, that this has always been his problem. But we know he is going to have this problem. You know, when he goes bad, he is going to go bad in a way of like seeking, you know, see, of being very proud and extremely arrogant and seeking to dominate other wills, um, just like Melkor. Um, and, uh, and so, so, you know, we have this kind of anticipation of that. Um, and I think there, again, I go back to the point that, that Mike made about the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Muriel's don't blame me <laughs> comment. Um, uh, you know, that here we, we, we see clearly this is, you know, so now we're looking at the Nerdinel thing in the context of what, uh, of the career of Feanor that is going to come. So yeah, no, I agree that this is a, uh, that is a hugely bad sign. Hugely bad sign. Um, 
Let's see. We should. I, I see. I know uh, it's getting late, and there are a couple people who are uh, sort of having to drop out, and I don't want to sort of stretch things too far as well. Joe brings up an interesting point, which we should get back to because we've mentioned it and we haven't talked about it much. So I want to maybe we uh, maybe we end with this, um, which is the the Finway question. Um, you know, I suggested that our narrator has left us with the open question. Finway second marriage, good idea or bad idea? Discuss. Well, let's do that. What do we think? Um, what What do you think we're supposed to do with this whole Finway question? Thoughts? Chris, go ahead. Well, um, it brings to mind, I, I've done some reading in the histories, and I can't remember what volume it is, but uh, it, it, it implied that it, in some of Tolkien's thinking that having more than one wife was kind of really extraordinarily rare for yeah. elves, that they pretty much mated for life regardless of the death of the body. And so it was uh, really contrary to the custom taking a second wife in, in elvish culture. So uh, um, from that standpoint, it seemed like it was uh, um, probably raised some eyebrows, if you will, by the, for the rest of the population. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Uh, you're, right, you're right that Tolkien does say that it is extremely rare. Um, I can't offhand think of another example, actually. Um, no, can't think of another example. In fact, not only, um, not only do we have people, you know, elves who get married and who don't remarry even if their spouse dies, but it, it seems even usually to be common that if an elf falls in love with someone whom they cannot for some reason marry, they never marry. Um, you know, that they, they seem to remain faithful even to, uh, you know, an unrequited love or something like that. Um, soulmate and only one soulmate. That, in a sense. Now, I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit resistant to the soulmate language only because that sort of suggests a kind of destiny, um, which I don't I necessarily think is sort of, is, is operating. But, but yeah, I mean, as it, certainly the sort of mating for life. And of course, this makes some sense. If, we're to understand that, okay, the elven spirits go to the halls of Mandos after, after the, you know, they perish, they die, you know, however we call it. And, um, and, you know, then they are healed and they are purged and they are cleansed. And it, maybe it takes a long time and it's a big deal, but you know what? Eventually, uh, they're coming back. And I think that's, it's gotta be awkward, right? I mean, at some point, Finway is gonna, like, be reunited with both of his wives. Uh, and how's that going to work? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, awkward family reunions of the, of, of the Finway family are going to be awkward under any circumstances, but goodness. Well, I think there was something in that story that, uh, well, shoot, never mind. It's been so long since I've read it. I'm not going to recall it correctly. So I'll just move on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So, Jason, I was thinking the same thing. Jason brings up uh, the uh, passage in Matthew 22, which, if I'm remembering correctly, if it's the same passage I'm thinking of, Jason, it's the one where uh, the Sadducees ask Jesus the question about the guy who has this, who or the woman who marries the seven brothers and then herself dies, and they say, uh, you know, so, you know, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be, right? And, of course, they're kind of mocking the whole thing and sort of trying to point out a loophole in the resurrection of the body system, because famously the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the body. So they try to back Jesus into a logical corner and, and sort of sh- sh- prove that this whole 
resurrection thing doesn't make any sense because if somebody has multiple spouses, then in the resurrection, is she married to all of them? You know, isn't that awkward? Well, yeah, that's exactly how humans and elves are different. Of course, Jesus's response to that is what, well, you know, uh, you know, you err not knowing the, the scriptures or the power of God, you know, in the resurrection, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. Um, you know, things are just different. Well, with elves, though, they're not. I mean, that's the difference, right? I mean, sure, things are not necessarily exactly the same. Uh, little time in Mandos changes everybody, but at the end of the day, they're still who they are. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that there's second marriages are deservedly rare among elves because they certainly raise some complicated issues, um, uh, which get really really awkward one thing of course which made it even more awkward um in one version of sort of tolkien's thinking about this um and i i too chris i can't remember this is also uh from uh one of the histories and i can't remember which which volume i'm thinking of right now but in some of the earlier uh some of the earlier concepts tolkien actually did um was sort of planning essentially a reincarnational uh, approach with the elves that the spirits of elves who have been killed, you know, who have spent time in Mandos can be re embodied in their descendants. Um, but then that's, again, that opens up lots and lots of awkwardness. Uh, I mean, what do you do with that? Like, congratulations. It's a boy. Oh, grandpa. I mean, Ah, weird, very weird all the way through. Um, so that's even worse than the whole, like, what happens with, uh, um, you know, Finway and Muriel 10,000 years from now, 100,000 years, uh, you know, from the time of her death when both of their, soul, uh, you know, their souls have spent a lot of time in Mandos. But, of course, Dave in text has pointed out the counter argument. We've only been giving one side of the story here. Um, the other side of, the other side of the story, which the text presents very fairly is um well if he doesn't marry again then we don't get fingolfin and finarfin or any of their kids and you know the story of the silmarillion would be a much poorer story if we didn't have finarfin and fingolfin they are great and their children are great and they make very positive contributions to elfdom but that's a separate question of whether the second marriage was right in and of itself at the time that that was done playing devil's advocate here a little bit. <laughs> right, right. Yes, and I think similarly, uh, to sort of tack on to that, you can say, well, just because good came of a thing does not prove that the thing was a good idea. Um, that we certainly get lots and lots of precedents for. Um, that is, because again, you could say the whole thing, the same thing about evil, right? Um, yes. Good comes, you know, there are some good things that come of Melkor's rebellion too. That doesn't mean it was a good idea. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that that's, that is definitely something to remember. I, I, I think at the end of the day, Finway's second marriage remains kind of sketchy. Um, and he is someone he can, you know, Finway and the choices that Finway makes can kind of, you know, slide under the radar. Feanor looms as such a large character and his choices are so obviously catastrophic. Um, you know, on so many occasions that uh, it's really easy just to kind of fixate on that. But Finway, I mean, I think that we can definitely see some uh, some sort of sketchiness at work here. Mike, go ahead. Focused on that paragraph about uh, the marriage and whether it was right or wrong, I just love the uh, phrase that uh, 
that the sorrow and the strife in the house of Finway is graven in the memory of the Noldoran elves. Uh, the, the use of the word graven, referring to Feanor's misdeeds, when earlier we're told that Feanor is the brilliant young student that improves on the language and writing and engraving of uh, yeah. the Elvish language. And just that, 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 that verb echoes back to that, that earlier paragraph really eloquently, and I, I love it. Yeah, no, that is that is fantastic, isn't it? Like, I, the suffering was graven on the hearts of the elves. And if it weren't for Feanor, you wouldn't be able to engrave it there, because you're engraving it in Feanorian runes, aren't you? Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's, right, that's right. He's fun. the engraver kind of of, in language, but he's also the, this horrible engraver in terms of deeds and, and what, what happens afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I and that, but that I think is a really is is a really eloquent kind of picture of the situation. You know, that is of of the comp- of the sort of, of the moral complexity of the situation. Um, you know, and again, I come back to, um, I, you know, I, I I I quote as I am prone to quote because it's one of my favorite Tolkien quotations of all time in all of his works. Uh, that is that line from near the end of Leaf by Niggle when uh, when when Niggle says to Parrish, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Referring to, you know, exactly this, like, oh, a sec- second second guess these bad choices that we made. Uh, you know, I wish we'd, I'd, you know, I'd made these better choices, these different choices, these, you know, these, 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 these better moral choices. And Niggle says, hey, you know, don't worry about it. It could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Um, and you know, I think that you can see this here, you know, um, Feanor's, you know, it's, it's, it's not that he, it's not that he was, you know, it's not that he was great. It's not that, you know, it was certainly terrible, you know, the choices that he made, but, uh, you know, was he, was he a net loss? Absolutely not. Okay, let's see. Any final questions here before we go? I think we need to, it's, uh, it's about time to wrap up here for, uh, for this evening, I think. But, uh, um, any, any final, final thoughts or, or issues here? All right, Mike, you wanted to, I, I don't even understand this, but go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. The, uh, the passage at the, the final paragraph where Melkor is deciding which of the three groups of elves he's going to target. And the first group is too hard, <laughs> oh, yes. and the second is too soft, but the third group is just <laughs> right. I have a toddler. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. The Noldor are just high enough, and then, now of course, you know, that's a passage which is, which really, of course, reveals more about Melkor than it reveals about the elves. That is, he, uh, it, it reveals something about the Vanyar and that they will have nothing to do with him. So, you know, he's got, he's, he, he's, you know, there's no chance he's going to get a date with the Vanyar. Uh, but, um, of course, how he looks down at the Teleri, you know, he just, he thinks that he thinks that they're worthless. Now they're obviously not worthless. Um, but so that is really revealing about him. Um, it does sort of weave, lead then to the, the, the interesting question. What would have happened if he had, you know, what, what would a corrupted Teleri have looked like? But of course, in some ways, it seems inevitable from the beginning that he would have gone for the Noldor because like exactly this pattern that we've been seeing, <clears throat> they are the makers. You know, they are the, they are the ones who have those same, those, you know, sort of sub-creative artistic impulses, which are the corruptible, imp- you know, sort of the, the, the most corruptible impulses that we see again, Melkor, Aule, um, you know, Feanor as sort of like the uber Noldor. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it is, <laughs> it is a wonderful, it does sound like the three bears. Uh, <laughs> I think that that's, uh, 
that's pretty good. Um, all right. So I think on that, uh, we will leave for tonight and we will, uh, come back for the Silmarils next time. Um, thanks everybody again for a fun discussion this week and, uh, we'll see you next week. Okay, in the next session, we will discuss Chapter 7 of the Quinta Silmarillion, Of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.